And now we're going to read our second passage tonight. That's from Colossians chapter 3, and this will be the passage Ian will speak on tonight. So Colossians chapter 3. Okay, we'll be reading from verse 1 to 17. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the thing of things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all, all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them, to, to them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now Ian will come up. Let's just uh, pause for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity it is to read and study your word tonight. Lord, I pray that as uh, your word uh, goes out tonight, that you would speak to each one of us. Help us have listening ears, listening hearts, and that we'd be ready to respond to what you have to say to us tonight. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. As uh, Chris and John have already mentioned, uh, there was a wedding here yesterday, and there's actually been quite a lot of weddings in this church in the uh, last year or so. And, and weddings are great, aren't they? You know, you've got two people, they're in love, everyone gets dressed up, fancy clothes, and there are promises made to each other. But I wonder when two people get married, whether one partner realises and knows that the person that they're getting married to is not going to be the same person that they married. Now, I don't want to alarm the newlyweds here, but your husband and your wife is, not, is going to be a different person after you get married. They're going to change. And you've probably heard someone say, he's not the man I once married. And let me try to prove this from my own marriage. And, and rather than talk about me, let me use my wife Jennifer as an example. And if you look at the screen, you'll see 
a table of the before and after uh, changes that have happened in my wife's life. Now, they're all fairly self-explanatory. When we were first married, her cooking skills were limited. Now they're less limited. I put down excellent, but she changed that. When we first got married, she never drove a car. She didn't drive at all. Now she drives all the time. When we first got married, her footwear collection uh, consisted of just a few pairs of leather boots. That's all she ever wore. Now, a vast collection. When we first got married, Jennifer would close the doors in a very noisy manner. Once Jennifer's marital status changed, her life changed in all sorts of ways. And my life changed as well. In fact, when anyone is joined in marriage, it must mean that changes will happen. And tonight we're going to see that being a Christian must mean a changed life. Just as a couple's marital status has changed from singleness to marriedness, that is, they are united as husband and wife, when you become a Christian, your status changed before God. You went from being God's enemy, alienated from him, to being united with him. And that's how your new status is described in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. You are united with Christ, and that must mean a changed life. A person's marriage is important, perhaps the biggest decision that a person can make, but it is nowhere near as significant as a person being united with the creator of the universe. And that's how Jesus is described just a chapter back in chapter 2, verse 16, as our creator. So if being married to another person means changes in your life, being joined with God himself must also mean changes in your life. So if you've got a different status before God now that you're a Christian, I want to ask, what are the changes that have happened in your life? Is there any difference to your priorities, your desires, the way you speak and the way that you treat and think about one another? These are the things that we're going to look at tonight. And Paul will help us, he's the writer of this letter, by reminding us firstly who we are. And then he'll show us what difference this is to make. And thirdly, why we should live this way. And if you look at the outline that some of you will have there, You'll see that this doesn't happen just once or twice, but thrice. I I use a similar tactic when I speak to my son Isaac sometimes. I tell him who he is by reminding him that he's my son. I then tell him what difference this is to make. So I tell him to go and clean up his room or put out the bins. And then I tell him why he's to do this, because it's good for him who he is, what difference that makes, and why he should do it. And so Paul begins by reminding the new church at Colossae of who they are. He doesn't begin by giving them a list of things that they're to change now that they are Christians. What he does say in verse 1 is that they have been raised with Christ. And this is closely connected with what we read last week in chapter 2, verse 20, where it says that we have died with Christ. It's saying that with Christ we died and now with Christ we are raised. We were God's enemies, alienated from him and dead in our sins, but he has transferred us from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom 
of his son. Do you realise that this is the most important thing that can ever happen to you? If by faith you believe that the gospel, the gospel that Jesus died for your sins, the sin that separated you from God, and that he rose again from the dead, then you have been raised with Christ. And that is what you are. Your status has changed. And if that is what a Christian is, then our heart and our mind must change as well. And when it comes to our heart and our mind, Paul is talking about what we desire and what we think about. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we can see that the things that we desire and think about more than anything else are really the things that dominate our decisions, our attitudes and what we do. For example, if I'm dominated by food, I will think about food. I will read about food. I will watch TV programs about food. I will cook food. I will spend my money on food. I will talk about food. I will eat food. And in a strange kind of twist, I will be consumed by food. But we read here in verse 2 that we are not to be focused on earthly things, the things that this world offers. We're to set our hearts and our minds on things above. We're to be thinking about our relationship with Christ. We're to be motivated by those things that will please Christ. We are to align our agendas with Christ's agenda and purposes so that we are headed in his direction rather than our direction. And why should we have this changed heart and mind? And Paul spells it out for us in verse 3 and 4 in terms of our past life, our present relationship with Christ and our eternal future with him. For you have died, that's in the past, and your life now in the present is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, who is your life, then you also will in the future, appear with him in glory. If there's been a decisive end to our old life, then there must be a new direction for our new life. Our new life is now hidden in Christ, which is really saying that while there will be those around us who don't, don't see this relationship, it's hidden from them and they can't see the reality of what's happened. Just as a non-Christian, they can't see that your sins are forgiven. It's no less real than the fact that you are united with Christ. But the day is coming when the reality of your new status will be revealed. What is hidden now will be made known to everyone when Christ returns in glory. If you were dead in your sins and you are now united with Christ and you are are going to share in eternity with him, then you cannot go on living like nothing has happened. The most amazing thing has happened, and this must mean a radical change to our desires and our thoughts. Has your new status made any difference to what you think about and what drives you? But for Paul, Christianity is not just a matter of desiring and thinking about things above. If all we ever did was to think about our relationship with Christ, then we could easily get disconnected from the realities that we face every day. Our desires and our thinking are to affect our everyday lives. 
And this is where he starts to get specific. The second part of verse 5 lists five things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. And I think it's probably right to say that all of these things have to do with how we think and act sexually and how all these things must change. To put it bluntly, being a Christian is to change your sex life. I think Paul lists these practical things first because he knows what his original readers were like and he knows what we're like. Just as the new Christians in Colossae had had come out of a pagan society where pretty much any sexual practice would have been acceptable, our own culture today is not very different. We need to be aware that, generally speaking, our culture says that it's okay to do whatever you want when it comes to sex. There are very few limits. But the Greek word here that is used for sexual immorality is the word porneia, which refers to any and every kind of improper sexual relation. So when you're asking yourself whether what you're doing physically before you're married is okay, whether what you're looking at on your computer screen or on your phone or what you're looking at in a magazine or an advertisement, whether you're asking yourself or what you're fantasising about, is, is that okay? You need to ask yourself, is this what God designed sex to be? Is this an improper sexual relation? More importantly, is what I'm doing a reflection of the new self or the old sinful nature which I am to put to death? If you're even asking those questions, you can be fairly certain that you need to change what you're doing. And if you are struggling in that area of sexual temptation, one of the best things you can do is make yourself accountable to someone. If you're a young person, speak to your youth leader. If you're a youth leader, speak to the people that you're responsible to. For. If you're an older person, speak to an elder or someone you can trust. The damage done by ignoring Paul's call for putting to death sexual immorality is all too often so devastating, particularly in the church, is because sex is such a precious gift from God. If you give someone a gift that's a cheap bit of rubbish and they break it, it's no great loss, is it? But if you give someone an expensive, beautiful, well-intentioned gift and they mistreat it and they break it, that can be heartbreaking. Treating sex carelessly doesn't just break the hearts of those we're supposed to love. It breaks God's heart as well. Don't do that with sex. Put to death those things in your sex life that ruin God's special gift. So why should we change our sexual behaviour? We've already seen that sexual immorality belongs to our old earthly nature. And now we are given a new status. Paul gives us another reason. I was talking to a friend this week and he asked me a question. He said, what is the biggest problem facing mankind today? You might think, well, terrorism, global warming, drugs, the environment. The biggest problem facing humanity today is in verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. For those who have turned good things like sex and have perverted them so they just can please themselves, 
For those who have made themselves the rulers of their lives and ignore the true ruler of this world, then God's wrath is coming. But for those who have experienced the forgiveness of all your sins, you have been delivered from a dominion of darkness, as it says in chapter 1, verse 13, and you have escaped God's wrath. So we have seen, since we have a new status as Christians, there has to be a change in our hearts and our minds and our sex lives. But Paul doesn't stop there. He knows that being a Christian is to transform every aspect of our lives, including our speech. And so we need to ask ourselves, is how we speak and what we say a true reflection of what we are? When you speak, does it reflect your new status or does your speech belong to your old self? There's a great scene in the the musical My Fair Lady where the character Professor Henry Higgins, he's a speech therapist and he takes Eliza Doolittle and she's a cockney flower girl. She can hardly speak at all. He takes her to the races at Royal Ascot and Professor Higgins has... He's made a bet with this other chap that he can transform this woman who can hardly speak into a refined, elegant, well-spoken lady. Anyway, they're at the races and she's doing really well. She's been told only to say, how do you do? How do you do? And she's going really well. They get to the end, it's approaching the end of the race and the horses are getting to the finishing line and she forgets who she is And she calls out as loudly as she can a most inappropriate swear word to encourage her horse just to go a bit faster. If you've seen the film or the musical, move your blooming arms and legs. (laughs) Eliza Doolittle might have been all dressed up, but she weren't no lady, was she? Her words at the end of the race were an expression of who she really was. And in the same way, our words and the way we speak are to express who we belong to and what we are. In verse 10 it says that the new self is being renewed in the image of its creator. If we are being renewed in the image of our creator, then that must mean that we are to become more Christ-like. Does our speech reflect this or is our speech full of uncontrolled rage and anger. When we feel that we've been wronged, are we able to speak in a way that can calmly and respectfully put our view to someone else? Do we speak in such a way that is malicious? Do we use nasty, hurtful, thoughtless words that cut people down? What about speech that is slanderous? Slander is really the opposite of praise. Rather than improving someone's reputation... It's damaging their reputation. Are we happy to joke about other people and bring them down? What about obscene talk? Do we use language that is offensive or smutty or suggestive? Are we always truthful? Are we able to control our tongues in such a way that now reflects who we are? Can we begin to see the difference that being a Christian is to make for us? And why is our speech to change? Because you have put off the old self and put on your new self, which is being renewed to become more like Jesus. The image here is like taking off one garment and replacing it with another. After I go for a jog, 
particularly in summer, to be honest, I can smell real bad. Ooh. And when I get home, I'll, I'll either jump in the pool or I'll have a shower, but I don't put my stinky clothes back on. That's crazy. My running clothes still stink. And if we continue to speak in such a way that is angry or filthy or untruthful, it's like putting those stinking clothes back on. We are called to put off those words and that way of speaking because they belong to our old self. So far, Paul's been telling us what it means to put off the old self. But what does this new garment look like that we're supposed to put on? And again, before telling us the difference being a Christian should make in our lives, we're reminded again who we are. In verse 12, we're we're told that we are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. God has chosen you and me to be his special possession. And this is truly incredible. We've been given a new identity that we haven't earned or deserved. God has chosen us. We have the most privileged status that anyone could possibly have. So having been reminded again of who we are, what difference is that to make? Put simply, it is to change our character and our conduct. And if we are united with Christ, if we are to put on this new self that has been renewed in the image of Jesus, our character is to become more and more like his character. Verse 12 and 13 say that you are to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. If we are to be compassionate, we have to be able to feel for the sufferings of others and even share in their suffering. Our kindness is to be expressed through our practical concern for the well-being of others. To put on humility is to put off pride. Meekness is to consider others before you think of yourself. Patience is to put up with something rather than flying into a rage. All of these characteristics are about how we are to put the needs of others ahead of our own. This is part of what our new character is to look like. Not only are we to have a new character, but we are also to demonstrate this with a new conduct. And this is to be expressed in how we are to get along with one another. The way that we are able to put up with one another. The way in which we don't give up on one another. The way we are able to forgive one another and not hold grudges against one another. These are the ways that we can express who we now are. And again, why should we behave like this? Simply because that is how God has acted towards us. Even while we were his enemies, he forgave us. Perhaps you're having difficulty forgiving someone who has wronged you. Verse 13, it couldn't be much clearer. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And finally, like a special garment that goes over everything else, in verse 14 it says, put on love. This is what holds all these other virtues together. 1 Corinthians in chapter 13, it reminds us, If we do not have love, we are only a resounding symbol or a clanging gong. Finally, Paul makes a plea for us as God's new people to show what difference being a Christian is to make in his church and how we are to get along with one another. 
And one of the things that really must make God disappointed is how Christians get along with each other sometimes. The bitter arguments, the divisions that happen are not God's intention for his people. We are called to be at peace with one another because we are at peace with God through what Jesus has done for us. And verse 15 again reminds us of who we are. We are members of one body and that we are called to peace. We need to be aware that there are activities and strategies in some churches that can lead to division within the body. Usually these divisive things are done with good intentions, but we should all be striving to participate and encourage the ministries in our church that will strengthen unity rather than division. And how is this peace of Christ to rule in our hearts? It's through the word of Christ. Paul is talking to the Colossian church and reminding them of what they heard and learned about Jesus through that guy called Epaphras back in chapter 1 verse 13. That is to dwell in them richly. And in the same way, we are to stay in that message, to keep reading and studying God's word, keep singing about God's word, teaching and correcting each other in God's word so that it will be the controlling message for our lives. If you're not involved in a growth group, now's a good time to start. Why not enrol in a Bible study course or do some one-to-one Bible reading? These are great ways to help us as we learn to live transformed lives. And whatever we are doing, we are to be thankful. To be thankful is mentioned in verse 15 and 16 and 17, which emphasises its importance. Our thankfulness is to be an expression to God for who we now are as Christians. We are to have both an inward heart of gratitude and an outward expression of thankfulness. When we pray, when we sing, when we talk, when we read God's word, let's be thankful for all he's done for us. And let our thankfulness be genuine and enthusiastic If you've done someone a favour and they come to you and they're looking at the ground and they mumble, thanks. It's not particularly convincing, is it, that they're really that grateful. Let's remember the magnitude of the favour that God has done for us. Let that motivate us to live changed lives of gratitude. And Paul sums it up so well in all that he's written with this final verse. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Every thought, every desire, every action and word is to be done in Jesus' name for his sake because we are united with him and we're to do this thankfully. The point is that a new status demands a new life. And so we each need to look at ourselves and ask, does every aspect of my life reflect a new self? If this isn't the case, then something must change. You must either take off the old self with all the things that belong to your old nature and put on the new self. Or you to be honest with yourself and say that you've been trying to live this new life without firstly having a new status. This new status is only found in Jesus and nothing else. 
That's why this series that we're doing here at Surrey Hills is called The Supremacy of Christ. It's only with a new status through Jesus that we can truly live a new life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided a way for us to have a new status from passing from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. And we thank you that you have made this possible. Lord, we pray that if this has happened to us, that you would help us to put off the old self and put on the new self and live this new life. In Jesus' name, amen.